session with Dr. Farid Holakou. Good afternoon. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Dalakwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Our studio number again is 310 0555. On Monday night's show, I was joined by artist Ali Sabet. A uh, big thank you to him again. I still have the, if you want to call it tattoo, but the drawing he did on my arm is still uh, surviving a bit, uh, looking down at it now, but it was very nice to have him on the show. And because of that, didn't do the book on Monday. I'll be doing it today. And the book for this week, for next week's program, is System Air, Where Big Tech Went Wrong and how we can reboot. System Air by Rob Reich, Mehran Sahami, and Jerry M. Jeremy M. Weinstein. So looking forward to reading that and sharing it with you next week. And uh, the book from last week that I'll talk about today is Bittersweet by Susan Cain. And I loved this book uh, so much. Uh, Bittersweet, How Sorrow and Longing Make Us Whole. And you might I've heard that name before, Susan Cain. She wrote uh, a bestseller, Quiet, uh, several years ago, which was about the power of introverts in in a world that tends to be focused on extroverts. I think the subtitle was something about power of introverts in a world that can't stop talking. So essentially that we tend to overlook the value that introverts can bring to the table. And sometimes it's overlooked, and sometimes we even think that we should be extroverted. see this a lot with parents that I work with that they think their child should be outspoken and be a public speaker and walk into a room and want to meet so many people and talk to so many people and not everyone has that disposition and it's fine and in that book she shows how uh, valuable introverts can be or those traits can be and in this book she does a great job of showing how this feeling of bittersweetness that sadness and this feeling of longing, sorrow that we can experience gets overlooked or can be looked at negatively, or we can think of emotions in a very dichotomous way of the good ones and the bad ones, the positive and the negative, and feeling happy is good and feeling anything that's like sad is bad. So I think that's actually interesting. There's a way that similar to how in her first, I don't know if that was her first book, but in the book Quiet, she shows us how we might overlook or underestimate the value of introverts. In this book, there's that theme of how we can undervalue this feeling of bittersweetness or some of that sadness that might be intertwined with some good feelings, that that can actually be very valuable. And I really resonated with the book and that feeling of, uh, you know, she has a, at the beginning of the book, there's a bittersweet quiz where you can see how your disposition is. And so I think I scored I forgot the exact score on it, but very highly on it. And I tend to be a very bittersweet person. I like sad songs. I like songs that bring up some emotion that isn't just pure good feeling. It has something more to it that might be something even melancholy or sad. 
those are the ones that I really connect with. So I was really feeling like this book resonated with me. Uh, and often what I talk about on the show is how we can overvalue feeling good, feeling happy and undervalue sadness and allowing ourselves to feel sad or allow our children to feel sad or experience their feelings, something I might uh, touch on later in the show. And so that's how the book uh, begins with different experiences. She's had, ex especially she shares how in, um, I think when she was in law school, so she was young and she was listening to music that one of her friends said, why do you listen to funeral music or something like that? And she thought it was kind of funny, but also interesting and kind of puzzled her. Why do I like these kinds of songs? Why do I like sad songs? And so she says that's that question stuck with her and uh, was part of what made her write this book was about why we like sad songs, but then it evolved into more just this feeling of bittersweet feeling. Why do we tend to like it? And so there's this sense of longing that she talks about that part of what draws us to this bittersweet is this sense of longing that we can have as human beings as part of our experience. There's always a longing for something, some type of reunion or some type of going even maybe to something we've never experienced but this desire for an unconditional love of unconditional being accepted or being uh, taken care of safety and so because of this longing we can connect to these types of feelings or these songs that remind us of this yearning and in many cultures we have these types of uh, musical genres that are very uh, much about longing and yearning even in in Persian culture, we see so much of this. And I think sometimes I found that interesting that uh, I think Persian uh, culture in general, we tend to unfortunately avoid the negative feelings we try to and always be okay and think we're okay or pretend like we're okay because we think that's how we should be. Uh, but then when you look at some of our, our music, some of the most famous type of music or singers like Shajarion, it's very sad music. It's very, very sad. But that's the one of the most famous singers of our especially of our generation, and that type of music is probably one of the most well-known as far as it's something that everyone can accept as good. That's a very sad type of music that has a lot to do with longing, or you feel that in, in the voices when they express that. So I thought that was interesting, and, and it made sense to me that there's some type of a connection there. She does express, as I was saying, that we, uh, just like with extroverts versus introverts, we tend to have, especially in American culture, this tendency towards being happy all the time or feeling good or the sanguine choleric outlook as she talks about in the book here of feeling good go get her take care of things there's no time for sadness because that's going to slow you down and just going forward but as she puts it it's not that this longing is a passive kind of sadness because when you long for something it points you to that, to, that, to that desire or thirst for something that could then motivate you. And I even see this with people when it comes to dating. Clients, for example, will be in a, a casual relationship or dating someone that they don't think is really good for them long term. And a common thing you'll hear is, well, you know, when the right person comes along, I would end this relationship and, and start that one because that's what I really want. And what I try to point to them is that Although that seems like it would make sense on the surface, one, if they're occupied with someone, they probably won't be looking as much as they could, putting as much effort into that. And also, if they don't let themselves feel that longing for what they actually want, 
they might not actually go out and get it. If they're quenching their thirst with something they don't really like, they might not actually seek the water they really want that would really quench their thirst. So we at times have to allow ourselves to feel that longing, that emptiness, whatever that might be coming from, wherever that wound is, to seek out what we want. But if we fill it in some way that is not meeting the need fully, but at least quiets it, we actually might not listen or be able to listen to that voice within that's that's going to draw us to what we want. So uh, I thought that was also a good point that I notice often that if we focus on just feeling good or feeling less bad, then you take the more comfortable road, which might mean fulfilling or, or filling something um, that doesn't really fulfill what you actually want. And so there's, a, as I mentioned, the outlining of American culture and how this tendency came to be of focusing on being strong and feeling good and happy and that sadness uh, is associated with weakness, which is unfortunate. Um, but she also traces different types of art and things that, that tap onto this, for example, the Moonlight Sonata. And I was reading that part of the book where she described the Moonlight Sonata while I was on a flight, and it just started to make me tear up because although I was not hearing the song, I was hearing it in my head uh, and hearing the, the notes and the way it, it has this sense of longing and the way the notes and the chords as they progress. And I started to tear up. And I wondered, if, you know, the people next to me, if they saw me tearing up, what they might think. But I was really connecting with that part of the book of what those types of songs make us feel. Because it is a, a puzzling thing. I can understand what, where her question comes from even for this book. If I tell you that someone will sing a song that makes you feel a bit down or feel sad, you might wonder, why would I want someone to make me feel what seems like a bad feeling? But it actually is something quite uh, beautiful uh, in, in her description, in my mind as well. Because I think that's what life is, as she describes in the book. There is pain in life. Pain is part of life. It's not that life is good and then there's pain sometimes. It's interwoven into our experience of life. Life inevitably leads to death. Relationships end in some way. Either the relationship ends and both people are living, or because one or both of them die, the relationship can't continue, at least not in that type of form that it is in. Love might continue in some other way, but it doesn't continue in that same form. And so I think accepting that, embracing that, going into it is actually what makes life fulfilling and have meaning. When we try to avoid pain, we try to avoid those inevitabilities of life, we don't live a fulfilling life we avoid things that might be more meaningful and important, and we don't really fully experience something. When you are with someone in a relationship, recognizing that even if you promise forever to one another, we know that this relationship does end, at least in the mortal plane, that actually can make us value and cherish and prize what we have in front of us even more. And this is a theme that's come up lately for me, and I've talked a lot on the show, of facing our mortality, of recognizing that it can sound bleak, but that we are all going to die, that we won't be here forever. So you yourself won't always have the time to do whatever you have in mind that I will do in some future, some idealized future where we always have more time to do things. And when it comes to our relationships, first just forming them, but then the ones we have, we won't always have time to repair them or to do the things we want with those people. We don't know when life will 
end, when those relationships will end. And so that theme came up in the book as well, facing the impermanence of things, which can be heartbreaking and recognizing that it's painful, but that is the reality. And I think that's why when we hear these melancholy, bittersweet types of songs, they can resonate so deep because I think that is the essence of the human experience is this bittersweetness that life is that whatever good we want to experience, we have to accept the bad or the painful or the risks that come with it as well. You can't have the good without the bad, not in the sense necessarily that if you don't taste the bitter, you can't taste the sweet or you won't know how sweet something is, but that that is the reality of the experiences that we have. If you value something, if you love someone, then it has to hurt when you lose that person, when you lose that someone. The pain is interwoven with it. It's not that you have to feel pain to know how good it is to have it. It's that you can't have something good without it hurting if you lose it. And so grief is that pain we pay for the love that we have. It's the pain and the price we pay for being in love or loving someone, that when we lose them, it, it hurts. It doesn't feel good. And on the way here, I was actually listening to, um, she mentions Leonard Cohen throughout the book a few times, that that's someone she really uh, admires as an artist and really was touched by his work and a version of his song or poem, Hallelujah by Jeff Buckley. And I was tearing up imagining my grandmother who I lost last year. I hadn't thought about her death for a little while in the way that I did, but the song brought up those feelings that were still there, that I still feel. And there, there's a, a big part of the book about grief and how we all have experienced grief in some way, that there's no one who has not experienced grief because it is, again, an inevitability of life that we die and that people around us will die as well. And we have to accept that and that it can be painful, but it is the truth that we have to accept. And she shares this really nice poem. Um, it's a haiku by, I think the name uh, of the poet is Isa. And it talks about how we, you know, impermanence, and I'll read it to you now. It says, it is true that this world of dew is a world of dew, but even so. It is true that this world of dew is a world of dew, but even so. So he is accepting in a way that this world is impermanent. It's a world of dew. Things are not permanent. They're going to change. But those last three words, but even so, and those really touched me and she mentions those words uh, from that point of the book forward a few times or many times because that is that feeling that we have that we get that this world is impermanent and we can understand that and embrace that but still we wish it would be different but even so it's still hard to accept there's so much pain in those three words that I think we can all relate to that this is life and yet it can still be beautiful and it's not that something that we just fool ourselves into thinking that something bad is good, but that we can value life even more by recognizing this impermanence. And so this bittersweet feeling, it's actually something that to me is what makes life worth living. It makes life very meaningful. So I, I really loved this book, would highly recommend it. Uh, Susan Cain writes in a very, at times, poetic way. She tells great stories. She shares heartbreaking story, but very vulnerable and open about her own relationship with her mother that started in this very idyllic type of a way that her mother was such a protector and a nurturing force and wonderful force in her life. But then in later adolescence and college years, when she wanted to 
uh, express herself more relationally, sexually, their relationship fell apart and, and really never recovered. And it's a very painful story. And I was actually, um, in a way, surprised, but pleasantly surprised that she was sharing it so openly in such a vulnerable way, because that made it even more real. Um, but of that bittersweet relationship and, and how things uh, went, went in that, uh, pursued after that was quite powerful. So I, I highly recommend the book. I think she's done another great job. I loved Quiet. And, you know, sometimes you wonder, there could be a lot of hype about someone having a new book coming out, but I think this totally lived up to it. And I hope you will read it if you haven't already. I uh, also want to thank Parham. He was the one that had my brother. He had mentioned to me that this book was even out. I didn't know about it. So hope you will check it out. That is Bittersweet, How Sorrow and Longing Make Us Whole by Susan Cain. Let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Uh, in the first segment, I was talking about the book uh, Bittersweet by Susan Cain, which I really, really loved and hope you'll check out. And so I mentioned grief, and I wanted to go a little bit deeper into some of these different themes in the book, one of them uh, being grief. And as I mentioned, that that is the price that we pay for having relationships that we enjoy people that we love in our life it's that it hurts if we lose them and so we sometimes try to just have the good without the bad just be happy without feeling sad enjoy the relationship but if you lose it don't be sad life goes on there's plenty of fish in the sea Uh, there's no need to be sad all these types of things we might tell ourselves in this positivity bias and also toxic positivity that we can try to spread really hurts us in a lot of ways And so we want to move away from that and recognize that the only way we can have good relationships is if we're willing to accept the pain that is there. Sometimes people will say, if someone says something mean to you, don't worry about it. Don't care. Why do you care what people think? And so if you say that, my answer would be, well, you also can't feel good at all if they say something nice to you. Because you can't say when someone says something nice, it feels good. But if they say something mean, I don't feel anything. That doesn't work. It's essentially that whatever we allow ourselves to feel, it's kind of like a, uh, a pendulum. As far as it could swing one way, it has to swing that far the other way. And it's true, actually, that we want to be mindful of how good we let some things let us feel, too, because of that pendulum that we have to be aware of. So if someone randomly gives you a compliment and you say it changes you so much, well, you have to be ready that that means that people can say random things to you that will really bring you down. And so, yes, a loved one tells you something very sweet. It will make you feel very good. And that same person can hurt you deeply as well. That's why we uh, focus so much on trust in a relationship. Sometimes when I talk about trust in romantic relationships, people just think about infidelity, which, of course, is probably the biggest breach of trust we can have. But trust means a lot of other things. It means how safe do I feel or how much can I trust that you will keep your word, that you won't hurt me in a variety of ways. Uh, including with, for example, your words and things that you do. So we have to accept that if we want to experience a life that feels good and meaningful, that we have to accept the risks and the costs and the pains that come with that as well. You want to have your dream job, that means you'll be hurt if you lose that dream job. You can't just be happy that you get it and not care if you lose it. But this is the advice we sometimes get or you hear from people. Oh, you got the interview? Great. Oh, you didn't? It doesn't matter. Who cares? And I I get the mindset to a degree, but I would prefer even for myself when someone responds with 
acknowledging the pain that might be there, asking me, of course, but acknowledging that that's, yeah, that was just sad. And you notice that when we say something is sad, we feel this uh, urging uh, or, you know, this uh, burning to go away from it. And I've talked before about this feeling of equilibrium when it comes to emotions, that there is this sense, it's also kind of like a pendulum, but we're trying to come back to the center, that if you don't feel good, that we have to quickly get to feeling good. And that's what these feelings essentially signal to us. You have some bad feeling, you feel hungry, you eat to resolve that hunger, that homeostasis. You feel thirsty, you drink something, you feel hot, you try to cool down. Uh, Mark Solms in his great book, The Hidden Spring, and I was very lucky to have him on the show last year, uh, talks about this in that book, about this homeostatic uh, function of our feelings, that you feel something. So I feel hot, and because of that, I try to resolve that feeling of being hot, which is something my body needs to survive to stay within a certain range of temperature. And so I do things to get towards resolving that. And the good thing is the feeling I can qualitatively feel that it's about being hot and cold and temperature. And then also I can feel as if it's getting better or worse. So if I put on a sweater, I'm going to get more hot and that feeling will get worse. And I feel like, oh, this is not helping. If I go into a room and it's cool and I start to cool down, my feeling will get less. It will start to resolve. And that guides me towards that homeostasis and that way of taking care of myself. So we can understand there's a tendency to go toward away from the negative feeling and you could feel it in a conversation someone says something like, you know this happened and i'm feeling really bad about it and if we just leave it there you will almost always find that people will feel this strong urge to quickly make it okay oh but you know something whatever fill in the blank you can almost feel it whatever it is that comes after that is some way of saying it's okay and what i've noticed is that when you hear people talk about their life if they say they ended up feeling okay, we don't really care about their reasoning. We just care that they got to that okay place. You know, so, yeah, you know, um, my best friend said something mean to me, so that's not good. So we are left with this feeling like, oh, that's not a good feeling. How is it going to get resolved? And they say, you know, what? I realize I don't want to be friends with them anymore, so I just cut them out of my life. Now, maybe to that extreme, you might have a reaction to it. But if they say now they feel good, we almost are okay with and feel like it justifies whatever it was that got you there, which is really problematic because it could be something very unhealthy. Or so in that case, your friend's best friend, if it's best friend, obviously that means someone you're so close with, said something you didn't like or did something you didn't like, and now you're just not going to be friends with them anymore. Of course, if they said something so extremely hurtful, it's possible that would be justified. But usually what we're talking about is they said something you didn't like, you need to resolve it. You need to talk about it. And if a friendship has value, you want to show that value by how much you work on preserving it, on taking care of it. So if we just get fixated on feeling good, we might hear this person's story and say, okay, well, they're feeling good, so it must have been good. And this can't be the way we live our life. We can't just live it based on what feels good in the moment. We get this in a way because, you know, we wouldn't say just uh, eat whatever you want, don't study, don't do this, don't do that, because it feels better to do something else. We recognize that. But with our emotions, we often do follow this type of pattern or let that guide us. If it makes me feel better, if it makes me feel less bad, it must be good. So, you know, I went through a breakup, but who cares? I, I don't even want to, if they wanted to break up with me, I'm not going to be sad about it. And it's like, yeah, good for you. Well, 
if you want my opinion, if you go through a breakup after a long relationship, I hope you are heartbroken. I hope you are very, very sad. Because that tells me that you let yourself love that person and to be in that relationship fully. If you were with someone for three years and break up and say, I don't care, I don't think that's a good thing. If you say, I feel great the next day. There are some exceptions. You see people are in a relationship and for a long time they've broken up in their head. They don't know how to execute the breakup. Out of guilt, they stay in the relationship. So when they break up, they have relief. But that also tells me that last part of the relationship, they weren't fully in it. So still something is wrong there. But the mindset that if you're less sad than the other person after a breakup, somehow you won, to me is really totally backwards. But we see this a lot, even literally written in those words, you'll see an article after a couple is broken up and it says, who won the breakup? And usually what they mean is who's doing better, who looks better, who's dating someone sooner and dating someone maybe more, you know, attractive or more famous. That's who quote unquote won the breakup. And it's unfortunately part of our um, culture very much of winning and losing and comparing. But we make it very clear that we think that if you're sad still, you are the loser. And if you are happy, well, you're the winner. And she talks about actually being a loser and that term in this book, how it became this negative thing in American culture. But there's a sense of a loser is sad and the winner is happy. Well, again, if you talk to someone after a breakup and they're very sad, I think that makes sense. They were with someone, they got emotionally attached, which is healthy for a relationship. They might have felt like their future would be with this person. They'd made plans and goals together. When I work with clients, I often get them to see that it's not just the memories they had with that person, which hurts because they still hold on to those. It's the dreams they had when they thought about what they would do together going forward. There's a lot to grieve. And so it's understandable and necessary to go through that to genuinely move forward. But if we just focus on what feels good, we tend to turn to drugs and alcohol, distractions, dating someone new, having a fling or a rebound because we just want to feel better to feel like we're winning and feeling okay. And that's really unfortunate that we would go in that direction. So to live a meaningful life, we have to embrace the pain and the sadness. To live a life that we feel good about in the long run, we have to accept those pains are part of what we go through. So if you come to me after a breakup, Obviously, I'm not going to ever want you to feel something you don't feel, but just know that my expectation is you're going to be sad. That's where I would be my default. If you don't, I would try to understand that, what's going on for you. But if you lose someone in your life, it makes sense that it does make you feel down, does make you feel bad. And we also hear this in the language we hear at a funeral. Oh, you know, so-and-so was so strong. And what does so strong mean? They didn't cry, right? If you go to a funeral and someone was quote-unquote so strong, we mean they gave their eulogy or their speech without crying. And really, we, we also mean it feels good for us because if they cry, we start to feel things. But we have this very clear notion that being sad is somehow weak and not crying is strong, which I think is very unfortunate because when you're grieving, it is necessary for you to go through that pain in order to heal. You see so many stories, and she shares some of them in the book, of people who didn't grieve or didn't have the space to grieve or uh, didn't feel comfortable feeling those feelings. And years later, that grief is still something they carry or it shows up in some other part of their life because it's been unresolved, because they didn't get the chance to experience it. So if you are going through it or if a loved one is going through some kind of grief, 
recognize your tendency is we want everyone to feel good. That feels better. It's understandable that we have this tendency towards resolving that pain, it not being there, and someone feeling happy, whether it's yourself or someone else. But recognize that that doesn't mean that that's what's necessary in that moment. Yes, uh, an unbroken bone is a good state for a bone to be in, but if it's broken, we have to acknowledge it needs time to, to rest and repair and to heal. We can't just say, well, it's better to be able to walk on the leg, so start walking. You need time to heal before you can take those steps. Emotionally, we need time to heal before we can move forward. And as she puts it in the book, it's not so much about moving on, but moving forward. You're not completed or done, or it's not like uh, it never happened. Life will never be the same after you have a big loss. That's something we have to accept. It won't be the same. And we can't want it to be the same or try to fight for it to be the same. It won't be. But it doesn't mean we can't move forward. We definitely can. Life will and can continue. But to pretend like we're totally okay or it's like it didn't happen, that's going to be denying the truth and the reality of our experience and might even be denying the significance of that person and that relationship to us. We shouldn't try to force it to be like it was before because it won't ever be and that's okay so some of these biases we have when we approach grief unfortunately get in the way of us experiencing what we often need to go through and to experience to feel sad that's okay and, and that's why i think i resonated so much with this book because that's something from the first times i was talking about these issues on this show seven eight years ago it was something that i thought was really important because i would see it so prevalently in our, our lives that this um, moving away from sadness constantly or thinking it's bad, whether it's in ourselves or other people. Someone cries, what's the first reaction? Don't cry. Mostly because of ourselves, but we think it's just for them and we think we're doing a good thing. But if someone is sad, allowing them to experience it is very important. And when we recognize the meaningful things in life will come with sadness and pain, we don't want to deny those things to our loved ones and to ourselves. And speaking on that after the break, I'm going to transition into talking about this same theme when it comes to parents and parenting. Because as parents, even more there is this pull to want to make sure our kids are okay, that they're happy, that they're feeling good. But that can interfere both with our children's growth and their experience of their lives and also facing a life more fully and living a more full life. So we have to ask ourselves, what's the goal I have for my children and how I'm parenting them and raising them? And that's something I'll talk about after the break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So as advertised before the break, I'm going to talk about parenting and how it could relate to this theme of bittersweetness or embracing the bad feelings, the sad feelings as they come in life. And before we look at anything we're doing, we want to try to understand what's what's my purpose, what's my goal, what's my objective here. Uh, so parents, obviously, the one of the main objectives, especially when you have a baby, is just keep them alive, protect them, and that is a primary one. It does make sense, uh, but there's more to it than that, especially as your child gets older. You recognize that there's a lot more questions or questioning that you might do of what you're doing and why you're doing it. So I think it's as we look at any part of life and parenting being one of the most important ones, something that we want to be very conscious of, purposeful in what we decide to do, not just let's see what happens kind of a mindset. And so for many parents, you'll hear this adage, I just want my kids to be happy, which makes sense. Uh, that doesn't sound like a bad 
thing. It obviously is. But this also comes to this understanding of what does this word happy mean? Because it can mean different things to different people and we can define it in different ways. Or someone can say, I'm happy with my life. And what does that mean? So there is happy of the sense of just smiling and being joyful or having pleasure in a moment. Those good types of feelings in a moment. There's that kind of happy or that definition of happy. But we can also define happy more as something of a feeling of fulfillment, a deeper type of happiness, which also we might call contentment, feeling content with our life, feeling good about it. And that's what I think we mean when we say, I look, I'm happy with my life and the life I live. It means we're content. It doesn't mean I feel good every moment or uh, all the moments in my life felt good. It means that I feel good about the life I lived, the decisions I made and the things I did and didn't do, the relationships I had, the things I experienced. And yes, likely it will also include experiencing pleasurable things. Um, I'm not anti-sadness. My brother Parham texted me <laughs> during the commercial break, very kindly said, great job. And then I said, I just want everyone to be sad all the time. Obviously joking, but I understand that's kind of how it could sound sometimes. Uh, but of course, when I think of a good life, it includes so many pleasurable, joyful moments. But we don't want to think that that's all we're going for. And so if we're raising our kids, of course, we want to think about how they're going to feel and what they're going through, but how we want to raise them and what kind of people we want to help them become. Well, we only do so much. There's a lot that they're doing as they become the, the beautiful people that they are. But what are the ways and things we want to guide or instill in them as much as we can as we uh, help them become who they are? And so to me, we would want to instill this sense of meaning in them, this sense of valuing things, of recognizing that the good things in life are also difficult things or have difficult parts in them. You want to succeed or become good at something, it takes hard work. You want to have a good relationship, it's going to be difficult sometimes. You want to have friends that you really like, sometimes they're going to bother you or upset you as well. Not only that, but you have to include that. But what parents often do, I have coined the term pain prevention parenting or the philosophy of pain prevention parenting, which is um, essentially that's the guiding post. If something hurts my child, they shouldn't do it or have to do it or deal with it. If it feels good, okay, that's fine. Anything they don't like, we should avoid. And this is a very unhealthy way, of course, for ourselves to live, but to live or help our children live their lives. Somebody doesn't feel good, stop. Something is painful, you don't have to do it. Yes, uh, as I, I tried to um, advise, we want to avoid the pain that is damaged. So if someone is you know, hitting your child or someone is abusing your child emotionally or saying something really harsh, you definitely can intervene and help them in whatever way makes sense. So it's not to just let them suffer. That's obviously not the argument. But the argument is that recognizing that if we go only go off of what doesn't feel good or what feels good, our children won't live a good life and won't learn the reality of life and to live a meaningful life. So if we want our children to understand that the good and important things in life also have some bad feelings in them, we have to allow for them to also feel those bad feelings. And that can be very hard for a parent who first has to recognize their own experience of these feelings. Because for most of us, those feelings feel intolerable, they feel bad, they feel like something is really wrong, we should get away from them, so we can't tolerate them in ourselves. 
And we have to first take a look at that. One of the biggest markers for me of mental health is our tolerance for negative feelings. Some might as well call it distress tolerance, frustration tolerance. How do you do or how do you deal with not feeling okay? Because that is a part of life. And if you can't tolerate it, that means you're going to do a few things. One is you're going to try to avoid it, which means you'll avoid these things that might make you feel bad, but it'll mean you'll avoid meaningful things and putting yourself in situations that could lead to growth. But then also, and inevitably, even if you do all that, you'll still feel bad sometimes. You're going to turn to unhealthy ways of trying to get rid of that feeling because I, I don't feel good. How do I get rid of it? Do I distract myself? That's one way we often go to or one path we often go to. But then if it's even a more powerful or intense feeling, do I use drugs, alcohol, food, sex, gambling, something, some kind of behavior to distract, excite, do something that takes away that bad feeling because that becomes the only thing that matters. And that's a very harmful way of approaching our life to get rid of those feelings. So first, as a parent, you have to ask yourself, what's my own tolerance for negative feelings? And most people have a very low tolerance. It doesn't feel good. And so if I don't feel good with my negative feelings, I can't sit with you when you have your negative feelings. And if we actually look at empathy, and she, uh, Susan Cain talked about this in the book a bit, if I don't allow myself to connect to my pain, I can't sit there while you connect with yours. And I'm going to try to get you away from yours, or I can't tolerate it, or I might get annoyed by you. Ugh. All this person does is complain or is sad about their life because I don't want to and I can't sit with those types of feelings that are there. So I have to be able to sit with those feelings first before I can allow them for someone else. And I have to accept that these are a part of life so that it's not such a bad thing. Uh, I sometimes use the word crisis, but changing the first I to a Y, because for a lot of people, if someone is crying, it's a crisis. <gasps> Someone's crying. And you see this with parents. Their baby starts crying. Their young child starts crying. And they're just panicking on how to get the child to stop. Give them food. Give them their toy. Give them something. Promise them something. And so, of course, when your child cries, we want to care. And if you have a baby, especially, you do find what it is that's missing for them. If they're thirsty, if they're cold, if they need to be held, if they need to be changed, you try to find what's the problem there. But especially as they get older, we want to recognize that we want to first try to understand what's going on and help them understand it, rather than try to pretend like we can live a life without pain. How can I just eliminate my child's pain? And of course, we look at our beautiful, lovely little children, and we have such a strong need almost and this strong drive to take away their pain. That's where compassion comes from, this desire to protect and take care of this young, vulnerable thing. I actually FaceTimed very quickly for a few minutes with my cousin and her baby. And of course, when I look at her, I want nothing bad to happen to her. So even as I talk about these things, I understand that pull that I'm looking at her and wanting to make sure she's okay and take care of her. And it would be hard to imagine something even small that's harmful to happen to her. So we have this strong pull that will be there, but we have to be okay with tolerating when our children are not okay. We don't want it. We don't want them to hurt. But if I do have this mindset that life includes painful feelings, that that's part of life, that it can be okay and life needs to have those things to really be what it is. And then those feelings come and then they go. I won't panic when my child now feels sad or feels upset. Okay, they're sad. Okay, that's not good. And I'm going to empathize. I feel it with them. 
but I can tolerate it because I know, first of all, the feeling itself is not that bad. It's okay. They're going to be okay. And I know this feeling is going to go away. And that's something that we convey to our child by how we respond. Because when you panic, it's this feeling of something really bad is happening. And what if it doesn't go away? What if we can't fix it? But if you handle it, right, if you go see the doctor and say, oh, yes, you have this cough. It's going to be, yeah, that, it doesn't feel good. It hurts, but it's going to get better. You feel comforted, even though in that moment, the pain is still the same of the cough. But that feeling of hope, that feeling that things will get better is very comforting. So your child comes to you crying. You say, oh, that's, you know, I could see how this bothered you. You got hurt by this. You hold them, but you also have this sense of calm that it's going to be okay. And so if we can tolerate the negative feelings, we can give our children that feeling. But if we can't, then every sad feeling becomes a crisis. It becomes something scary. And our children will learn that too, that it's not good to feel this way. I shouldn't feel this way. I should get away from it if I can. If I can avoid it, I should avoid it. If I can pretend like it's not there, I should do that. And of course, that my parents don't want me to feel this way. So this thing that's going on inside of me is really bad. And unfortunately, that's the most common message parents send about these types of feelings is you shouldn't feel this way. It's not good. I don't want to see it. People don't like to see it. It even can make you unlovable because it makes it hard to be around you and you feel that way. So if we approach our children with this mindset that, of course, we want to protect them, take care of them, but we recognize that if we're raising them to be people who can live a meaningful life, we have to teach them about the bittersweet too. So if your child has a fight with their friend, if we just focus from the pain prevention philosophy of parenting, it's just, well, okay, forget that friend. We don't need to be close to them anymore, or you don't need to talk to them anymore. But if we recognize what makes life meaningful, our relationships, which are always going to be complicated, you can empathize with your child. So it's not that you deny their pain or you don't care. Of course you do. You sit with them and, and look at how hurtful it must be. It hurts because you love this friend. You and this friend play together. You have so much fun together. That's why it's hurting is actually not just because pain is bad, but because your relationship is good and you care about this person. And now what do we want to do? And I've seen it with so many parents personally, but also professionally that their child has some issue and they just try to remove the problem so quickly. They had a f disagreement with the classmate, let's switch their classes. The teacher got upset with our kid, let's just switch them to another class or even another school. Rather than, okay, you and this child had an issue, let's go towards what happened. We're not gonna run away because pain is not something we just run away from or these bad feelings, we can go into that and let's see if we can resolve this. Let's see what happened. Or your teacher got upset with you. Not to say for sure the teacher is right, but let's just say as the adult, they might've seen what happened, but still we protect our children. We wanna have their side, but let's see if we can talk with the teacher and resolve what's going on. And the powerful lesson is that not just that, okay, it's easier to stay in your class or whatever it might be, but the powerful lesson is that when issues come up, they can get resolved because life is going to have problems. Life is difficult. Life is going to have things not go our way or not the way we like. And we can either learn that when that happens, run away because there's no hope for it to get better. And also you should never feel this way. Or we can learn that it's okay. These things happen. We can actually move into that pain or back towards it and see that it's not so bad. And actually, if we resolve it, it can make things even better. If you resolve something with a friend, loved one, romantic partner, your relationship actually becomes stronger if you go into it.
If you deny it, you never have that opportunity of making things better. And so with our children, as hard as it can be to see them hurt in any way, that's understandable. But if we can recognize that if my goal is to help raise my child to live a meaningful life, to be someone who embraces the meaningful aspects of life from relationships to taking on challenges to working hard towards things that make them feel good and can help other people, then I have to allow them to also face and embrace the negative feelings as well. To show them that these feelings are not scary things that should be avoided at any cost and at all times, that these are inevitable parts of life, that I'm not going to try to create a life where my child never feels sad. I will help them recognize that sadness is actually part of what life is like and what life will bring our way, but it doesn't mean it makes it any less beautiful and anything it makes it more beautiful it makes it more meaningful in that way so as a parent we do have to really think about this because it can be so hard within ourselves first and foremost not to feel bad but we feel even a stronger pull to not let our children feel bad and something i tell parents is your job is not to make your kids happy in the sense that they feel good all the time your job is to allow your children to face life and to experience things and to show them that whatever they feel is okay and that you'll love them whatever they feel and they're going to be okay no matter what they're feeling in that moment as they go through life we want to embrace the bittersweet ourselves and allow our children to do that as well let's go to another commercial break studio number three one zero four four one zero five 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 we'll be right back welcome back so we've talked about the bittersweet in life and variety of contexts we talked about parenting next we move on to the bittersweet in our romantic relationships maybe the ones that can feel the most bittersweet because we feel things the most intensely in those relationships and as the theme i've brought up so far continues we see the same thing that we want to have in our romantic relationships this ability to embrace the negative and the positive that's going to come about in order to create that relationship. And here's where we can actually see that some of the myths we have about love and romantic love and fairy tales can get in the way of what we experience. So when we think of happily ever after, all that really matters is finding our prince or princess charming, and then we live an easy life together that's all happily ever after. And Eric Fromm in The Art of Loving, still one of my favorite books ever, um, he talks about how this is one of the problems we have is that this myth we have that the whole issue when it comes to romantic love is finding the right object to love, the right person. As long as I find the right person, then relationships and love will be easy. It will be happily ever after. And so this is wrong on multiple counts or hurts us in multiple ways. Uh, one is that it does not encourage us to focus on ourselves and developing our own capacity to love and to be a loving partner and to be someone that knows how to love as that's what that whole book is about art of loving is that to see and view art uh, view love as an art meaning that you have to study it and practice it and work on it but when we think of the fairy tale version it's like i'm complete i just have to find that missing piece where i'm just incomplete in this one way and once we find that missing piece we interlock and it's all happily ever after but unfortunately we forget the part where we're still a work in progress ourselves to work on ourselves and to work on our capacity to love but also what we unfortunately do when we buy into this myth is that we think that when we find that right person 
love and life will be easy. And this creates this expectation that's going to set us up for failure in the sense that once life is hard, we think, oh, I thought I picked the right person, but I guess I picked the wrong person because this doesn't feel good right now. And I was promised happily ever after. So we can see that this expectation can be hugely costly in the sense that we will end a relationship or think we're in the wrong or bad relationship or have a wrong, bad partner because it is what it's supposed to be. So it's like your car runs out of gas and you're like, oh, I guess it was the wrong car. I thought it was just going to run forever. Or it's an electric car. I understand people listening might might have a, a different type of car, but you still have to plug it in or do something. And if you thought that as soon as your car ran out of gas or charge, something was wrong with it, well, then you won't be happy with any car. So in any relationship, you're going to face challenges. And we have to actually acknowledge that relationships are very, very hard. And that's why we put so much time to find the right person, not because when we find the right person, it's happily ever after, but that it can make this very hard thing less difficult, less challenging. It'll still be challenging, but it might be something that we can get through or create a good relationship together. So we have to recognize that first and foremost. Relationships will be hard no matter what. And if we're looking for that happily ever after, it could turn into this mindset of just try to feel good in the relationship, which won't work. But one of the ways we might try to create this is by not having a very close relationship. So if I work with a couple and they say they've been together a long time and never had an argument, I usually will joke and say, I'm sorry to hear that. And, you know, we kind of laugh and it's half joking, half serious. But the part that's half serious is that if you've been together for a long time and never had an argument, disagreement, that tells me that one of a few things is happening. Either you're not that close to each other in an emotional sense. So you might even physically be close, but you're not that close to each other. So you're not really bringing up a lot of feelings in one another. Someone that you don't know doesn't upset you very much or someone you barely know. But once we get closer to someone, there's more parts to rub up against to one another to create irritations and upset feelings and to trigger things within us. So either you're not very close or, and related to that, one or both of you is hiding your feelings from one another. So you could be with someone that never gets upset with you, but it doesn't mean they're never upset with you. It could mean they never express that they're upset with you or hurt by what you said. And so often couples will hold a lot in and they think they're doing something good because we've been taught things like pick your battles and if you're patient, that's good. And there's pressure on both people, but sometimes women have even more pressure to not quote unquote nag too much or don't be a nagging person. So they're not supposed to complain or say they're upset about anything, which is unfortunate because that shouldn't be at all how a healthy marriage proceeds. But we're encouraged in a lot of ways, oh, you didn't say anything. And this goes back to our types of philosophies and mindsets towards positive type of feelings, feeling good. If you say you're okay with something, oh, great. But if something bothered you, you could be looked at as annoying or sensitive or you're the problem. You're creating a problem. So unfortunately, we're encouraged to be a good partner means to be one that doesn't complain, that doesn't share what bothers you, when actually it's quite the opposite. A good partner is one who expresses what they are feeling, the good and the bad, the things they like that their partner did definitely show appreciation and express that. But also if you're upset with your partner, to share that with your partner is a huge act of love. You are not, uh, if you're not doing it just to bother them or to hurt them, 
which hopefully is not the case. But if you're doing it because you're upset and you don't want that to stay between you and your partner, it's not that you're bringing it up to hurt your partner. You're bringing it up because you love your partner and you love your relationship. I'm bringing this up so that we can deal with it. So it doesn't sit within me and then sit between us. Um, you know, this is a little bit different, but I heard Gerard Carmichael highly recommend you see his uh, new stand-up special on HBO, Rothaniel, but he was getting interviewed and he said, when you're hiding something, you can't fully hug someone. It's like you're holding something behind your back. So one arm is behind your back. And I thought that imagery was really beautiful that if I'm holding something behind my back that I'm hiding from you and then we hug, I can hold, only hug you with one arm and not really as tight as if I have nothing to hide from you and can embrace you fully with both arms. And so if we're hiding what we're upset about and what we're feeling from one another, we can't get as close as we possibly can. There will always be something between us, something in the way. And if we want to have an emotionally intimate relationship, that means we're going to share things that bother us or upset us. And so if we lose this mindset that it should just feel good or we don't want to be bothered by our relationship, then we can have a genuinely close relationship where I would hope you want to know, not that you want to bother or hurt your partner, but you'd want to know if they were hurt by you. That would be the mindset I would want you to adopt. Just like if your child was sick, let's say your child gets a cold, you don't want your child to get a cold. But would you want your child, because they know you don't like that they get a cold, to hide from you that they had a cold and, and stay in their room or avoid it or pretend like they're not coughing? So you don't want your child to be hurt, but you want to know if they're hurting because you can then help them and be there for them. So similarly, in a relationship, it's not that you want your partner to be upset or sad about anything, especially about something you did, but one would hope that if they were that they would tell you or you'd want for them to tell you I want to know if I did something that upset you because I care for you I love you if I don't that just means I want to feel okay about myself or I get too affected or offended if you say something and so we have to have some level of empathy and some level of humility to be a good partner I have to accept that I think I'm a good person I'm lovable I'm good but I know inevitably I will do things that hurts the other person that I can be even annoying in some ways or that I can be difficult in some ways or I might be absent-minded or not aware of what I'm doing and how it might affect my partner. Even if I try my best and really do work at it, it still is going to happen. So that's where that humility has to be there that of course none of us is perfect and none of us will be perfect even for our person that we're promising our life to and we chose to live together with. We still won't be perfect for them. Things will come up and we have to accept that humility. I all too often see people that don't want to accept any mistakes or wrongdoings because the stakes feel too high because of their own perfectionism, their own narcissism, whatever is underneath it, that they can't accept that they made a mistake. So if someone is upset, the conversation turns from let's understand what happened to let me prove that I didn't do anything wrong and that you're the sensitive one or I didn't even do what you said or whatever it might be. But the primary way we want to focus when we're looking at an issue is to understand and then to see what we can do about it to get to a better place, not feel that we're in a courtroom to prove who's right or wrong. And so if we recognize this as something good, it's not that you want your, your partner to be upset with you, but you would almost be happy that they're sharing something with you. So it could feel both. You can have some of that bittersweet or a mixed feeling. Oh, it doesn't feel good that 
you know, this thing is coming up that I did something you didn't like, but I'm at the same time grateful that you're bringing something to my attention that hurt you because I know you are sharing this with me and not holding it in. So you can feel all those things at the same time. This is why our emotions are quite complex. They're not just black and white feelings of just happy, just sad. There often is a intertwining of things, kind of like the bittersweet that the book Susan Cain uh, wrote, what that, that feeling is about. So you're going to feel hopefully all of those things. And the more you have these conversations, the more you will see that they can be resolved peacefully if you have that type of relationship with your partner and end up with you feeling closer to each other. Because... If I don't share with you something that hurt me, that's going to affect our relationship. But then if I do, one, you understand me better because you understood what it was, whatever it was that you did that hurt me. Oftentimes, these conversations also lead to more understanding of each other because, yes, what you did might have been wrong in some kind of objective way in that moment, but it often connects us with some pain. So, you know, you... You were late when we were meeting and actually that bothered me. I didn't tell you that day, but I wanted to share with you that it bothered me. And then it might connect to, I remember when I was a child and my parents would pick me up late from school or they forgot about this or something happened that gets triggered and now you understand your partner even deeper. But if your partner felt like, you know what, I shouldn't bother my, you know, my husband, my wife, I shouldn't do anything that upsets them, let me just hold it in. We see that we've lost such an opportunity for closeness and for connection all because we think that it's better to avoid a problem rather than to deal with the reality of life and the reality of a relationship, which is that it's going to have things in it that don't always feel good or things don't always go exactly right or as we would like for them to go. So we see these opportunities and I see it so often with clients in couples therapy where some issue comes up and it could be the first time that the person has shared something with their partner or at least at the depth about something in their past. You know, actually, it reminds me of this time that this happened. And so we see that as if we don't get so caught up in, well, even now we can be like, well, see, it wasn't about me. You have something in your past that's bothering you. Hopefully the focus is more that you were hurt by something that happened in our interaction, and I care about that. Let's try to understand it. And we move away from blame and more towards understanding. That would be, it's ideal. We won't always get it right, but the mindset I would hope we can adopt in our relationships that I want to understand how you're hurting, why you're hurting, what's going on. I probably contributed to it. Let's look at all of those things together. If we have that sense of togetherness and trust in a relationship, then we can proceed in that way. Unfortunately, we often get into a very combative state, me versus you. If we fight, we have to prove who's right and wrong, who's the good partner, who's the bad partner, who's sensitive or who's insensitive, who's weak or who's strong or whatever it might be. And then it's always going to turn into a bad place. We don't want to make conversations always be a fight where we're against each other. We want to try our best to make it something that we're going through together. Something has happened. Let's see if we can move through it together. And often this is something that with couples I'll try to help them do is some issue that happened in their past. Sometimes I'll ask them to take a step back. Imagine if you were watching the story of your relationship like a movie and this incident happened. It's kind of a sad thing that's happened. Something happened, someone did something, and then you fought about it, and now you're fighting about what happened, and, and it's kind of sad. Or something bad happened, and because of how you dealt with something that was external to the relationship, now you're hurting within the relationship. And it can make us realize we're so fixated on being right and looking at our side of things that we're missing the bigger picture, which is, how is this affecting us? How is this affecting my partner and me? All of those aspects together. And how can we 
approach this from a space of trying to understand and then reconnect and move forward in a stronger way. Because ultimately, that's what we're trying to do when we have these conversations. Uh, sometimes people wonder, well, why are we bringing up the past? Isn't it just a waste? It's already in the past. Let's move forward. But we don't bring up the past because we say, oh, you know, it'd be fun to heard about this now, or I'd like to bring up this annoying thing. It's that, first of all, it has likely left a emotional residue or damage that might still be there, depending on how significant it is. But that also by repairing it, you can become closer and stronger. So it's not just we want to talk about the past to talk about it. It's to try to heal and to grow through that past experience that we've had. But all of this is only possible if we accept the bittersweetness that is the inevitability of our human relationships and especially the closest ones that we have. That there is going to be pain. That even though you love your partner so much and you're in love with them and have all these good feelings, things are going to come up and we have to accept that from the outset that I love you, but I'm ready to go through life with you and these things that happen. It won't be happily ever after. We can be happy about the relationship at the end of our relationship, whenever that might be, or when we look back on it at any time, but it doesn't mean that every moment will have just been happy. We will have to work towards that happy feeling and that happily ever after type of a feeling. And within that path will be some bumps, but that's okay. I want to go through these bumps with you. I don't expect it to be just a smooth ride the whole way. And that will make it feel even more meaningful that we've gone through these things together that will make us stronger and also make us reflect on these ups and downs and bittersweet feeling we have. The reality of our relationships is that they're bittersweet. They're not all good or all bad. Even the most beautiful ones will have some pain in them. It actually doesn't make them any worse or less beautiful. It can actually make them even more beautiful. That takes us to another commercial break. Again, studio number 3104410555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So the, the theme for today was has been bittersweet, based on the book Bittersweet by Susan Cain. I'm sure if you're listening, maybe you're a little bit sick of <laughs> hearing about all the sadness and the bad parts of, of things and wondering about the good parts. Um, but as I've mentioned, this is what we have to embrace to get to those good parts of the relationship to get to that. And continuing on what I shared in the last segment, I was thinking of what I have experienced in my own life, but especially as a therapist who has worked with many couples over the years, seeing them go into these painful places and coming out the other side in a better place. And when I usually work with a couple, we will talk about the good things What's brought them to therapy usually is that they're not in a great place. So first, it can be important to remember how they fell in love, which helps me understand them better, but also for them to reconnect to that, why they're even there. They obviously want to preserve the relationship at some level or else they wouldn't be there. Um, and, and what's good there, but then also we do get to the bad, which I understand. But I often see with couples what they experience is that they haven't gone to certain places together out of fear. It can feel very scary to talk about certain things. Or I, I've worked with couples where they have some issues, but what I can recognize is what's missing is the depth of their connection. So we're not just focusing on big problems. Of course, those are there and they can be uh, as defined big. Um, but what also can be missing is that connection underneath. How close do you feel? How strong is that connection? Because 
the foundation of what you build together in your relationship will determine what you can withstand. However strong the foundation is, the more it could withstand. So there's things that are going to happen on the outside that you have to face in life. Like let's say even with COVID that happened, but personal things that happen outside with work and family, and then things within the relationship that will come up. How much can your relationship take? And what I've seen is that it's of course a personal preference at the end of the day, but that people tend to resist genuine intimacy or being very close. And so with some couples I've worked with, sometimes we're not just looking at fixing an issue. We're looking at how can we be more closely connected to one another, which often will be opening up and sharing things that are uncomfortable. But overall, the goal is to feel more connected, more emotional intimacy. Because the desire to be with someone is very natural for almost everyone. They're going to have a desire to be with someone, even if it's temporary, but there's still that draw that we have. So we have that natural pull. And we have this desire to be seen, but this is where we encounter one of the many paradoxes we face as human beings, which is this very strong desire to be seen as we are, but this fear of being seen and rejected, because when I show myself that I can be fully rejected for who I am. And this relates to this overall fear of intimacy that we all have. So even with callers and with clients, I've probably told them many times, oh, it seems like you have a fear of intimacy, which can be true. And what I mean is that they have a strong fear or it's showing up in a certain way. But really, fear of intimacy is something that all human beings have. And that's part of the paradox. We have a desire for intimacy and a fear of intimacy because related to this theme of bittersweet and what I was sharing before, the more I feel good in this relationship, the more I can get hurt, the more I trust you and let you in the deeper you can hurt me, the deeper I let you into my, who I am, then you can wound me in a deeper place as well, because I've let you in there and that can be scary. So we have this desire to be seen and to be close, but it also scares us. So we have to recognize we all have some fear of intimacy, just like fear of heights. Some people are terrified of it, but if you put anyone out and they're hanging out a window, they're not going to feel comfortable. It's an understandable human fear that we have. So we have a fear of intimacy while having a desire for intimacy as well. And that's one of these paradoxes that we have to figure out. And so often in relationships, people think that it's supposed to feel the way it does. And of course, I don't know what you're feeling right now, but what I often think people are experiencing is a relationship that's not very intimate because we don't want to take those risks of getting closer, of exposing ourselves more and more and being more vulnerable and to go deeper into our partner's experience in life because we might not know how to handle it. We might not know what we see there. We might not know what they expect of us and that can overwhelm us. And so like many aspects of life, we stay in a comfort zone. And so most couples could look at their own relationship but they might recognize they were getting to know each other. It was exciting, it was passionate, but then they kind of hit a, a wall, but it's a self-created wall. It wasn't something they couldn't go deeper, but they decided to stop there because that's where they felt comfortable. Sometimes it's one partner more than the other and the other one might poke and try to break that wall that exists within the other person. And often it's a mutual type of thing. This feels safe. This feels right.
And it feels like nothing's missing because when you're in a room, let's say, and it has a wall, you don't realize what's on the other side. You just think, well, this is where we live. This is where we experience life. Not realizing that at, on the other side of that wall could be something quite wonderful and beautiful. And so I like the analogies either of going deeper or going higher. Both work when we talk about um, looking at intimacy. So the risks we take when we become more intimate um, is that we have to put work into that, into get closer to one another, to, to become a more intimate in that way. So the going up is like going up a mountain. And it's always easier to stay low on the mountain. And you say, well, it looks okay here. It's fine. But if you want to create a more beautiful relationship, you take the risk of going up together. And the higher you go on that path, it's scary because the further you can fall down. And that's what people get scared of. The closer you get to your partner, the more you expose yourself to them and get more vulnerable with them, the more one, they can possibly hurt you, but also it will hurt if that relationship were to end in some way and if they hurt you in some way. So it is scary. So again, this is where that fear of intimacy is understandable, but one that we want to not avoid. We don't want that fear to lead to avoidance and let the fear win. We want to go into that fear, understanding that it's scary, that we want to walk together on this path. And so the further you can fall, yes, but also the more beautiful the view of what you can see. The higher you go, the more you can see things that you would not be able to see at a lower view. And so the experience of that emotional intimacy to me is the pinnacle of human experience is having those types of deep relational emotional bonds with someone which we can create only if we take those risks together to be more open or be more intimate. And so as I was saying, we can also look at the depth of a sea. You go deeper and deeper and you can feel very comfortable in a certain part of the ocean because you know you quickly can go back up for air and it feels safe. But if we truly risk getting deeper, we go into those deeper parts not knowing and it could feel even like we don't know when we'll get that air again or when that air will come back or it'll feel like we can, but we might feel like we can feel safe without it in some way. The analogy might be breaking down there a bit. I'll have to look at it. But there's something about going deeper together that we can experience that will allow us to experience something we never have before. The reason though I like the analogy of going deeper into the water is because even as individuals, I see this in therapy where you can have people that when they can't tolerate those feelings that I was talking about before, they might dip their head into it and then you can feel them just, it's like they're pulling their head out. They feel vulnerable and they can't handle that feeling and they quickly want to come up for air because there's something that feels wrong about where they are. It feels like they're almost suffocating. And so as quickly as possible, they want to get out of that feeling. And unfortunately, they go away from where that really depth and that meaning is by reaching for that air or for, for bringing themselves back up to the surface and not going deeper into themselves. So if you look at your own relationship or you're thinking of starting a relationship, I would highly encourage you to consider the emotional intimacy of what you have because what I see is that people don't tend to go towards that. And you need someone to go with you. As I was saying, if someone doesn't want to let you break through that wall, you can't force them. And so often people will be in those types of relationships. Now, what you have to also ask yourself, because I've seen this, is that people will have their own fear of intimacy. They choose someone who's really blocked and they can blame them for the blockage. So I want to get really close. I want to be super intimate with you, but my partner won't let me. So we can feel like we can always blame it on them. But then when we actually look a little deeper and they look within themselves, they see that they have their own fear. 
that if their partner broke down that wall, as excited as they might think they would be, they'd also be terrified. And so there's a safety in being with someone that creates that limit for you, that doesn't, in a way it feels like, allow you to experience what you think you want to allow, but you're afraid of. Oh, they won't let me go, uh, you know, apply for that job, but I really want it, but they would never let me do it. And so we create these excuses for ourselves. And if we can let ourselves off the hook when we blame someone else or have someone else to blame, but often we have to really take a look at ourselves and say, do I actually want it myself? Am I really that open to it or am I afraid of it too? So gauge your own fear of intimacy. Where do you think it is? And also try to understand where it's coming from. Part of it is human, but if you find you have more of it, what that likely is telling us is that from a young age, you learned that being yourself is something you have to be careful about. That sharing your feelings, exposing what you're feeling can be dangerous. People might not want to hear it. If it's not something pleasant, they're going to react negatively to it. If you um, say something they don't like, they're going to react in a very strong way and not give you space to have that type of feeling. And if you're in a relationship, I highly encourage you to think about this. Hopefully you have a partner that's able to hear this too, that we can get closer than we've been. I've worked with couples that have been together a long time and they might think, well, we already know each other. We've reached that depth, that further, furthest depth we can get to emotionally. But there often are these barriers that are invisible that we don't realize are there because we've gotten so used to where we are. And if we break those down, we can go even deeper, which is scary, but it allows for us to create those beautiful experiences, those beautiful and meaningful relationships that are truly the most valuable things that we can have and the most beautiful experiences we can have. All right, that takes us to our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. In the last segment, I mentioned fear of intimacy and wanted to end the show talking about another fear, and that is fear of conflict, which relates to what I was talking about before in our relationships. We often fear sharing things that the other person did we don't like or something that could lead to some kind of argument or conflict, something the other partner might not want to hear. And it could be related to a fear of conflict that we have. And so like the fear of intimacy, we all tend to have some level of dislike of conflict. It means there's some kind of a thing to be resolved. Going back to the homeostatic type of understanding of things, some feeling that something is not okay, we have to make it right. So we shouldn't want conflict. Really what we're looking at when we talk about fear of conflict, another way of putting it is how okay are we at tolerating conflict or how much do we avoid conflict and that is really critical to how we live our lives so where does a fear of conflict when it's more than just a typical come from there's obviously always going to be cultural factors at play iranian culture we're pretty big on avoiding conflict that you should always be okay the over politeness that we have means that you shouldn't say something bothered you or things bothered you especially people that you don't know or certain individuals you are never allowed to be upset with if they're your, let's say, superior in some way, elders or something like that. Um, but we also can look at the family type of values, which of course are going to be related to that cultural impact, but of what you were shown when it first came to seeing conflict amongst family members. So how did they respond? But also very importantly, when we look at an individual's fear of conflict, it's how did they get shown or how was the response to their feelings or when they were upset? Were you shown that you're expected to make everyone around you feel better? So people who are conflict avoidant 
are also people pleasers. They don't want to upset anyone. They don't think they should upset anyone. And really what you're doing often when you have a fear of conflict is you're trading an internal conflict for an external conflict. So essentially there's an external conflict between you and someone else and it creates a feeling within you and because you don't want to have that conflict with that person because it scares you for whatever the reasons are which we'll get into you accept an internal conflict which is that you don't feel good about something but you show that you're okay someone says something you don't like there is the opening for an external conflict but you trade that for an internal conflict oh i don't want to have that fight we internalize that pain now, people who are conflict avoidant in a very strong degree, and for most of their lives, as is usually the case, it often becomes so automatic that they don't realize that they're upset because they have had to learn to disconnect from their own feelings in order to maintain this conflict avoidance. So if you're so afraid to bring things up because the other person will blow up or the other person will leave, there's at times a fear of abandonment that the relationship falls apart if I bring up something that the other person like doesn't like or if there's a conflict. So you learn to hold those feelings in. Over time, you learn to disconnect from it. So you can ask someone, and this comes up in therapy, you'll say, um, were you upset by this or were you hurt by this? I say, no, I didn't really care. It was fine. And sometimes later on, they get in touch with that pain. Or even if it's not way later in a therapy session, you might be interacting with someone and, okay, yeah, that's fine. Let's do this or whatever it might be. Then they get in their car like, wait, I don't want to do that. Why did I say yes to this? Or why didn't I say anything when that person said that mean thing to me? I didn't like that comment they made, but I kind of laughed along as if I was okay. And so maybe you realize it a little bit there or maybe not, but sometimes we're so out of touch with it because that's the safer way. If I want to hide my feelings from you, the safest way for me to do that is if I can hide it from myself. If I disconnect from my own feelings, then it's a lot easier because in a way it feels like there's nothing to hide. And so we often see people who describe themselves as easygoing as not necessarily easygoing so much as they are not in touch with what they want. So it's like, you want to go here or there? I don't really care. Maybe they do care, but they are more comfortable not caring because of their own things that they're dealing with. And so that's what they say. And it doesn't mean necessarily that's some huge, strong preference, but it's safer not to care. And so they go there. But when we go to that place, we're not in touch with ourselves and we also can't create genuine relationships with other people because that requires for us to uh, express that to one another, to express what we're upset with, to be genuine. And so people pleasers uh, actually tend to be unpleasant people to be around in the long term because we don't know what they want and what they're going through and what, what's happening for them. So if they tell you they're okay, you don't know if they're okay. You don't know if they're actually upset. If they say they're okay with the plan you came up with, you're not sure. Do they really enjoy it or are they hoping you read their mind and come up with some other plan? So it's actually frustrating and exhausting. And so people pleasers and someone who avoids conflict do these things because they're afraid to lose their relationships. But it's in a way a self-fulfilling prophecy because in acting in these ways, they don't allow themselves to create good relationships or to keep their relationships. People will get frustrated with them they will start to resent people. So if you're a people pleaser and you are in a relationship and you keep doing what the other person wants, for a while you can feel okay, but over time you'll get frustrated and either you'll blow up at the person or you might just end the relationship because you feel so unhappy. So 
the people pleaser path doesn't work and the conflict avoidant path doesn't work. So we learn from a young age that this is what we need to do to survive. But unfortunately, as is often the case with the survival tactics we come up with as children, they don't serve us in our future lives, especially to live a meaningful and fulfilling life with meaningful and fulfilling relationships. So we avoid conflict with the person on the outside, create conflict within ourselves, and the conflict doesn't go away. It's now within me. And if it's within me and then I have a relationship with you, we can't be as close. And that's where it gets in the way. So if we go back to that mindset of just what feels good, people might think, oh, but isn't it easier not to fight or not have an argument? It certainly is. And so even when I work with couples, I understand they'll be watching TV, relaxing, and one of them will bring up something that bothered them. And I understand that for the person who had no idea, it was a lot more comfortable to just continue watching the show uninterrupted without having to press pause and to have this uncomfortable conversation. We get that. But if we want to have a real relationship, we have to accept and embrace the realities, which are that our partner is going to go through things just like we're going to go through things. And we want them to share it rather than to not share it with us. Um, speaking on this uh, concept that it doesn't feel so good, I, I kind of laugh at times because it never feels like the right time to have a difficult or uncomfortable conversation. So sometimes people will say, oh, I was in such a good mood. Why are you ruining my good mood by bringing this up? Or they'll be in a bad mood and say, oh, you knew I had a bad day. Why are you bringing it up now? So really we can see there's never this feeling of a good time because when somebody doesn't feel good, it's never going to feel right. It never feels right to have an uncomfortable conversation because it's always going to feel uncomfortable. And we have to be able to embrace that and go into that. And so if we are fearful of conflict, it can be important to try to understand why. As I was saying, likely you'll see that conflict was not dealt with well in your family. And often you were the kind of person who took on the role that things are stressful, things don't feel good. I don't want to add any more stress. Or when I say something that someone doesn't like, they react really negatively to it. I'm not allowed to have my own feeling that's different from their feeling. Or to say I got upset with something they did. If the parents have their own type of narcissism or lacking that humility I was mentioning before to acknowledge that, of course, they're going to make mistakes and do things wrong. Well, then you'll feel like I can never challenge them. I can't say you hurt my feelings or you did something I didn't like. I'm going to get blamed for it and I'm likely going to get their anger or some kind of rejection from them. So we learned that to preserve the relationship, I can't really fully be myself. I have to put my own feelings away, which is heartbreaking, but that's the reality that many children feel that you can either be yourself or be loved. Actually, I think that was a line from uh, this book in, in Susan Cain's book, Bittersweet. Either you can be loved or be yourself, but not both. And that's really sad. And we want to be mindful of that as parents so we don't give that message to our kids. So when we're conflict avoidant, of course, it can feel like it's just for the other person. But we have to acknowledge that we're doing it for ourselves, that we are so uncomfortable with those feelings. We get so scared that we're doing it to create a sense of peace on the outside to also feel a peace within ourselves, at least in that moment, even if later the conflict exists because we didn't share what we we're going through. But we create this strategy to survive, but it's to make sure we're okay, to make sure the family dynamic is okay. But now even as we live our life to make sure we feel all right. And what's the antidote? How do we overcome this? Well, first, of course, it could be good to understand where it's coming from. As I've been talking about exploring your childhood relationships and experiences, 
how conflict was dealt with or was avoided in your family, how you were made to feel if you disagreed with someone, if you shared a feeling people didn't like, if you mentioned something that someone did that you didn't like, what was the response and how did that feel? Often people pleasers tend to be more on the highly sensitive side, the more aware side. They're picking up on so much and they get overwhelmed by things. So you're more likely to really dislike conflict than someone who might be like, oh, it doesn't feel good, but I can handle it. So you tend to be more sensitive, which is not a bad thing. Sensitive doesn't mean weak. It just means that you feel things more deeply, pick up on things more deeply. You can obviously uh, see this mindset expressed in books like uh, The Highly Sensitive Person by Elaine Aaron. So it's not that it's a bad thing, but we have to understand ourselves. And so we want to understand where it's coming from, who we are, all of those things. But like any issue we want to overcome, the only way out is through, meaning that you have to start to embrace conflict more and more. And so that means at first, start with people that you feel a little bit more comfortable with. And maybe we even tell them that, that you know what, uh, this is something I'm working on that might make you feel a little bit more comfortable that they'll be ready for it. Because if you're someone who's always conflict avoided and now you bring things up, people tend to react to that. They're not used to you bringing something up. So when you do it, like, whoa, that's strange. I didn't expect that from you. And they might not even accept it, especially if it's people from your family or people who like that you're conflict avoidant because they get their way or they never have to deal with you as a whole person. They might even reject it or push it away. So you have to be ready for that. When we try to change with people we've had long relationships with, they often don't like that because it means dynamics in our relationship with them will change. And they might be very okay with things being just the way they are. So be ready for that. But we have to be willing to accept conflict in order to get over this fear. Any fear we have, that's the only way we get through it. Some type of exposure type of therapy, systematic desensitization. You have to face what's there to see that it's not as scary as you thought. And hopefully you'll have people in your life and experiences in your life that will show you that it's not so scary. And over time, you will feel more comfortable to bring up what's on your mind. And when you go through this process of, it, of learning how to do this, you might get it wrong sometimes. We all get it wrong anyway. But especially if you haven't done it before, there can be a tendency to overcorrect. So you might even, because of so long holding things in and so long not saying what bothers you, now when you finally do, you might overdo it a bit, meaning that you say things a little harshly or too strongly or the timing might not be great. Yes, I said there's never going to be a great time, but there can be better times and worse times to bring something up. So you might go a little overboard. That's okay. Give yourself that space to experience something new, which always involves a learning curve. Know that it's going to feel uncomfortable. It's just like your posture. Right now, actually, I've, I'm noticing my shoulders are hunched. You put your shoulders back. It feels even a little bit uncomfortable, even though it's the healthier way for you to stand. Similarly, in our experiences, when you do something new, even if it's more healthy, it's going to feel a little bit wrong. It feels off. And your default will be to go back to avoiding conflict. So you have to make yourself conscious of it. Going into situations, after a situation, think about it. Was there anything I avoided here? Did I hold something in that I might have been bothered about? And then working on it more and more to face that. And what's all of this for? Well, one, so that you don't feel you have to hold things in and you can be more truly yourself. And then two, because you have that better relationship with yourself and you're more authentically expressing yourself in your interactions, you can create a more meaningful and real relationship with someone else and relationships, not just romantic, but plural and all the relationships you have with other people. You get to be more fully yourself 
and to be more fully yourself in your relationships with others as well. All right, that brings us to the end of today's show. It's been a pleasure as always. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delok. We have a wonderful day.